America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens by J.M. Barry. Lockout time. It is frightfully difficult to know much about the fairies, and almost the only thing known for certain is that there are fairies wherever there are children. Long ago, children were forbidden the gardens, and at that time there was not a fairy in the place. Then the children were admitted, and the fairies came trooping in that very evening. They can't resist following the children, but you seldom see them, partly because they live in the daytime behind the railings, where you are not allowed to go and also partly because they are so cunning. They are not a bit cunning after lockout, but until lockout, my word. When you were a bird, you knew the fairies pretty well, and you remember a good deal about them in your babyhood, which it is a great pity you can't write down. For gradually you forget, and I have heard of children who declare that they had never once seen a fairy. Very likely, if they said this in the Kensington Gardens, they were standing looking at a fairy all the time. The reason they were cheated was that she pretended to be something else. This is one of their best tricks. They usually pretend to be flowers, because the court sits in the fairy's basin, and there are so many flowers there and all along the baby walk that a flower is the thing least likely to attract attention. They dress exactly like flowers and change with the seasons, putting on white when lilies are in and blue for bluebells and so on. They like crocus and hyacinth time best of all, as they are partial to a bit of color. But tulips, except white ones, which are the fairy cradles, they consider garish, and they sometimes put off dressing like tulips for days, so that the beginning of the tulip weeks is almost the best time to catch them. When they think you are not looking, they skip along pretty lively, but if you look and they fear, there is no time to hide. They stand quite still, pretending to be flowers. Then, after you have passed without knowing that they were fairies, they rush home and tell their mothers that they have had such an adventure. The fairy basin, you remember, is all covered with ground ivy, from which they make their castor oil, with flowers growing in it here and there. Most of them really are flowers, but some of them are fairies. You can never be sure of them, but a good plan is to walk by looking the other way, and then turn round sharply. Another good plan, which David and I sometimes follow, is to stare them down. After a long time, they can't help winking, and then you know for certain that they are fairies. There are also numbers of them along the baby walk, which is a famous gentle place, as spots frequented by fairies are called. Once twenty-four of them had an extraordinary adventure. They were a girls' school out for a walk, the governess with the governess, and all wearing hyacinth gowns. When she suddenly put her finger to her mouth, and then they all stood still on an empty bed and pretended to be hyacinths. Unfortunately, what the governess had heard was two gardeners coming to plant new flowers in that very bed. They were wheeling a handcart with flowers in it, and were quite surprised to find the bed occupied. Pity to lift them, hyacinths, said the one man. Duke's orders, replied the other, and having emptied the cart, they dug up the boarding school and put the poor, terrified things in it in five rows. Of course, 
Neither the governess nor the girls dare let on that they were fairies, so they were carted away, far away, to a potting shed out of which they escaped in the night without their shoes. But there was a great row about it among the parents, and the school was ruined. As for their houses, it is no use looking for them, because they are the exact opposite of our houses. You can see our houses by day, but you can't see them by dark. Well, you can see their houses by dark, but you can't see them by day, for they are the color of night. And I had never heard of anyone yet who could see night in the daytime. This does not mean that they are black, for night has its colors just as day has, but ever so much brighter. Their blues and reds and greens are like ours with a light behind them. The palace is entirely built of many colored glasses, and is quite the loveliest of all royal residences. But the queen sometimes complains because the common people will peep in to see what she is doing. They are very inquisitive folk, and press quite hard against the glass, and that is why their noses are mostly snubby. The streets are miles long and very twisty, and have paths on each side made of bright worsted. The birds used to steal the worsted for their nests, but a policeman has been appointed to hold on at the other end. One of the great differences between the fairies and us is that they never do anything useful. When the first baby laughed for the first time, his laugh broke into a million pieces, and they all went skipping about. That was the beginning of fairies. They looked tremendously busy, you know, and as if they had not had a moment to spare. But if you were to ask them what they are doing, they could not tell you in the least. They are frightfully ignorant, and everything they do is make-believe. They have a postman, but he never calls except at Christmas with his little box. And though they have beautiful schools, nothing is taught in them. The youngest child, being chief person, is always elected mistress. And when she is called the roll, they all go out for a walk and never come back. It is a very noticeable thing that, in fairy families, the youngest is always chief person, and usually becomes a prince or princess and children remember this and think it must be so among humans also, and that is why they are often made uneasy when they come upon their mother furtively putting new frills on the basinette. You have probably observed that your babysitter wants to do all sorts of things that your mother and her nurse want her not to do. To stand up at sitting down time, and to sit down at standing up time, for instance, or to wake up when she should fall asleep, or to crawl on the floor when she is wearing her best frock, and so on and perhaps you put this down to naughtiness. But it is not. It simply means that she is doing as she has seen the fairies do. She begins by following their ways, and it takes about two years to get her into the human ways. Her fits of passion, which are awful to behold, and are usually called teething, are no such thing. They are her natural exasperation, because we don't understand her, though she is talking an intelligible language. She is talking fairy. The reason mothers and nurses know what her remarks mean before other people know, as that gooch means, give it to me at once, while wa is, why do you wear such a funny hat, is because mixing so much with babies, they have picked up a little of the fairy language. Of late, David has been thinking back hard about the fairy tongue, with his hands clutching his temples, and he has remembered a number of their phrases which I shall tell you some day if I don't forget. He had heard them in the days when he was a thrush, and though I suggested to him that perhaps it is really bird language he is remembering, he says not, for these phrases are about fun and adventures, and the birds talked of nothing but nest building. 
he distinctly remembers that the birds used to go from spot to spot like ladies at shop windows, looking at the different nests and saying, Not my color, my dear. And how would that do with a soft lining? And but will it wear? And what hideous trimming? And so on. The fairies are exquisite dancers, and that is why one of the first things the baby does is to sign to you to dance to him and then to cry when you do it. They hold their great balls in the open air, in what is called a fairy ring. For weeks afterward you can see the ring on the grass. It is not there when they begin, but they make it by waltzing round and round. Sometimes you will find mushrooms inside the ring, and these are fairy chairs that the servants have forgotten to clear away. The chairs and the rings are the only telltale marks these little people leave behind them, and they would remove even these were they not so fond of dancing that they tow it until the very moment of the opening of the gates. David and I once found a fairy ring quite warm, but there is also a way of finding out about the ball before it takes place. You know the boards which tell at what time the gardens are to close today? Well, these tricky fairies sometimes slyly change the board on a ball night so that it says the gardens are to close at 6.30, for instance, instead of at 7. This enables them to begin half an hour earlier. If on such a night we could remain behind in the gardens, as the famous Mamie Mannering did, we might see delicious sights, hundreds of lovely fairies hastening to the ball, the married ones wearing their wedding rings round their waists, the gentlemen all in uniform, holding up the ladies' trains, and linkmen running in front carrying winter cherries, which are the fairy lanterns, the cloakroom where they put on their silver slippers and get a ticket for their wraps, the flowers streaming up from the baby walk to look on and always welcome because they can lend a pin, the supper table with Queen Mab at the head of it, and behind her chair the Lord Chamberlain, who carries a dandelion on which he blows when Her Majesty wants to know the time. The tablecloth varies according to the seasons, and in May it is made of chestnut blossom. The way the fairy servants do is this. The men, scores of them, climb up the trees and shake the branches, and the blossom falls like snow. When the lady servants sweep it together by whisking their skirts until it is exactly like a tablecloth, and that is how they get their tablecloth. They have real glasses and real wine of three kinds, namely blackthorn wine, burberry's wine, and cowslip wine. And the queen pours out, but the bottles are so heavy that she just pretends to pour out. There is bread and butter to begin with, of the size of a threepenny bit, and cakes to end with, and they are so small that they have no crumbs. The fairies sit round on mushrooms, and at first they are very well behaved and always cough off the table, and so on but after a bit they are not so well behaved and stick their fingers into the butter, which is got from the roots of old trees, and the really horrid ones crawl over the tablecloth chasing sugar or other delicacies with their tongues. When the queen sees them doing this, she signs to the servants to wash up and put away, and then everybody adjourns to the dance. The queen walking in front while the Lord Chamberlain walks behind her, carrying two little pots, one of which contains the juice of wallflower, and the other the juice of Solomon's seals. Wallflower juice is good for reviving dancers who fall to the ground in a fit, and Solomon's seals juices for bruises. They bruise very easily, and when Peter plays faster and faster, they foot it until they fall down in fits. For, as you know without my telling you, Peter Pan is the fairy's orchestra. He sits in the middle of the ring, and they would never dream of having a smart dance nowadays without him. P.P. is written on the corner of the invitation cards sent out by all really good families. 
they are grateful little people too. And at the princess's coming of age ball, they come of age on their second birthday and have a birthday every month. They gave him the wish of his heart. The way it was done was this. The queen ordered him to kneel, and then said that for playing so beautifully she would give him the wish of his heart. Then they all gathered round Peter to hear what was the wish of his heart, but for a long time he hesitated, not being certain what it was himself. If I chose to go back to my mother, he asked at last, could you give me that wish? Now this question vexed them, for were he to return to his mother they should lose his music. So the queen tilted her nose contemptuously and said, Pooh, ask for a much bigger wish than that. And is that quite a little wish? he inquired. As little as this, the queen answered, putting her hands near each other. What size is a big wish? he asked. She measured it off on her skirt, and it was a very handsome length. Then Peter reflected and said, Well, then, I think I shall have two little wishes instead of one big one. Of course, the fairies had to agree, though his cleverness rather shocked them, and he said that his first wish was to go to his mother, but with the right to return to the gardens if he found her disappointing. His second wish he would hold in reserve. They tried to dissuade him and even put obstacles in the way. I can give you the power to fly to her house, the queen said, but I can't open the door for you. The window I flew out at will be open, Peter said confidently. Mother always keeps it open in the hope that I may fly back. How do you know? they asked, quite surprised, and really, Peter could not explain how he knew. I just do know, he said. So as he persisted in his wish, they had to grant it. The way they gave him power to fly was this. They all tickled him on the shoulder, and soon he felt a funny itching in that part, and then up he rose higher and higher and flew out away from the gardens and over the housetops. It was so delicious that instead of flying straight to his old home, he skimmed away over St. Paul's to the Crystal Palace and back by the river in Regent's Park, and by the time he reached his mother's window, he had quite made up his mind that his second wish should be to become a bird. The window was wide open, just as he knew it would be, and in he fluttered, and there was his mother lying asleep. Peter relighted softly on the wooden rail at the foot of the bed and had a good look at her. She lay with her head on her hand, and the hollow in the pillow was like a nest lined with her brown wavy hair. He remembered, though he had long forgotten it, that she always gave her hair a holiday at night. How sweet the frills of her nightgown were. He was very glad she was such a pretty mother. But she looked sad, and he knew why she looked sad. One of her arms moved, as if it wanted to go round something and he knew what it wanted to go around. Oh, mother, said Peter to himself, if you just knew who was sitting on the rail at the foot of the bed. Very gently, he patted the little mound that made her feet made, and he could see by her face that she liked it. He knew he had but to say, mother, ever so softly, and she would wake up. They always wake up at once, if it is you that says their name. Then she would give such a joyous cry and squeeze him tight. How nice that would be to him, but oh, how exquisitely delicious it would be to her. That I am afraid is how Peter regarded it. In returning to his mother, he never doubted that he was giving her the greatest treat a woman can have. Nothing can be more splendid, he thought, than to have a little boy of your own. How proud of him they are, and very right and proper, too. But why does Peter sit so long on the rail? Why does he not tell his mother that he has come back? I quite shrink from the truth, which is that he sat there in two minds. 
Sometimes he looked longingly at his mother, and sometimes he looked longingly at the window. Certainly it would be pleasant to be her boy again, but, on the other hand, what times those had been in the gardens! Was he so sure that he would enjoy wearing clothes again? He popped off the bed and opened some drawers to have a look at his old garments. They were still there, but he could not remember how you put them on. The socks, for instance. Were they worn on the hands or on the feet? He was about to try one of them on his hand, when he had a great adventure. Perhaps the drawer had creaked. At any rate, his mother woke up, for he heard her say Peter, as if it was the most lovely word in the language. He remained sitting on the floor and held his breath, wondering how she knew that he had come back. If she said Peter again, he meant to cry mother and run to her, but she spoke no more. She made little moans only, and when next he peeped at her, she was once more asleep with tears on her face. It made Peter very miserable, and what do you think was the first thing he did? Sitting on the rail at the foot of the bed, he played a beautiful lullaby to his mother on his pipe. He had made it up himself out of the way she said Peter, and he never stopped playing until she looked happy. He thought this so clever of him that he could scarcely resist wakening her to hear her say, Oh, Peter, how exquisitely you play. However, as she now seemed comfortable, he again cast looks at the window. You must not think that he meditated flying away and never coming back. He had quite decided to be his mother's boy, but hesitated about beginning tonight. It was the second wish which troubled him. He no longer meant to make it a wish to be a bird, but not to ask for a second wish seemed wasteful, and, of course, he could not ask for it without returning to the fairies. Also, if he put off asking for his wish too long, it might go bad. He asked himself if he had not been hard-hearted to fly away without saying goodbye to Solomon. I should like awfully to sail in my boat just once more, he said, wistfully to his sleeping mother. He quite argued with her as if she could hear him. It would be so splendid to tell the birds of this adventure, he said coaxingly. I promised to come back, he said solemnly, and meant it too. And in the end, you know, he flew away. Twice he came back from the window wanting to kiss his mother, but he feared the delight of it might waken her. So at last he played her a lovely kiss on his pipe, and then he flew back to the gardens. Many nights and even months passed before he asked the fairies for his second wish and I am not sure that I quite know why he delayed so long. One reason was that he had so many particular goodbyes to say, not only to his particular friends, but to a hundred favorite spots. Then he had his last sail, and his very last sail, and his last sail of all, and so on. Again, a number of farewell feasts were given in his honor, and another comfortable reason was that, after all, there was no hurry, for his mother would never weary of waiting for him. This last reason displeased old Solomon, for it was an encouragement to the birds to procrastinate. Solomon had several excellent mottos for keeping them at their work, such as never put off laying today, because you can lay tomorrow. And in this world there are no second chances, and yet here was Peter gaily putting off and none the worse for it. The birds pointed this out to each other and fell into lazy habits. But mind you, no Peter was slow in going back to his mother. He was quite decided to go back. The best proof of this was his caution with the fairies. They were most anxious that he should remain in the gardens to play to them, and to bring this to pass they tricked to him. They tried to trick him into making such a remark as, I wish the grass was not so wet, and some of them danced out of time in the hope that he might cry, I do wish you would keep time. Then they would have said, 
that this was his second wish. But he smoked their design, and though on occasions he began, I wish, he always stopped in time. So when at last he said to them bravely, I wish now to go back to mother, forever and always, they had to tickle his shoulder and let him go. He went in a hurry in the end, because he had dreamt that his mother was crying, and he knew what was the great thing she cried for, and that a hug from her splendid Peter would quickly make her to smile. Oh, he felt sure of it, and so eager was he to be nestling in her arms that this time he flew straight to the window which was always to be open for him. But the window was closed, and there were iron bars on it, and peering inside he saw his mother sleeping peacefully with her arm round another little boy. Peter called, Mother! Mother! But she heard him not. In vain he beat his little limbs against the iron bars. He had to fly back, sobbing, to the gardens, and he never saw his dear again. What a glorious boy he had meant to be to her. Ah, Peter, we who have made the great mistake, how differently we should all act at the second chance. But Solomon was right. There is no second chance. Not for most of us. When we reach the window, it is lockout time. The iron bars are up for life. This is the end of Project Gutenberg's Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens by J.M. Barry. Thanks for listening.